Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, regular listeners. You may have spotted that we've changed our name. It's now Honey & Co. The Food Sessions. So if you hear this sound, it's just us making dinner. Well... That and the fact that we're not allowed to use our title anymore. It's just been a bit of a thing, but don't worry about it. We hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the Honey and Coke with me, Itamar Srulovich. We hold the talks in our deli, Honey and Spice, in front of a small audience. We ask the people we admire from the world of food to come over. Cooks, waiters, makers, writers, drinkers and thinkers. We have something to eat, a glass of wine, and they tell us their story of making a life in food. This week we're joined by Rachel McCormack, a Glaswegian with a strong line in Catalan cooking. She joined us to talk about her book, Chasing the Dram, and we spoke about whiskey a lot. We drank a lot of whiskey. She told us about the legacy of Braveheart in Scotland. She told us why the people who make malt do, are not called Maltesers. And she told us a little bit about her favorite whiskies. It was a great night, and I hope uh, you'll enjoy listening to it. So, Rachel here, this girl, obviously, I don't know if people can tell from her accent, is from Scotland, from Glasgow. And she's going to tell us a little bit about her uh, journey around and back to Scotland and about her book that she wrote, which is excellent and funny, and about whiskey, obviously. You were born in Glasgow. And I and did all of my schooling and my university in Glasgow as well. And, and you finished your university, packed your bags. Well, I did a year out, so I went to Barcelona in about 1992 on the basis that it wasn't Scotland, which <laughs> if you were brought up in Scotland in the 80s, that was a very good reason to go anywhere else. And... I had been to Mallorca as a child with my mum and dad about three years in a row. It had been the best holiday I'd ever had. So, because we, we ended up, a friend of my dad had a house in Poyenza, which was the inland town. And it was before there were a lot of expats living there. And I just thought this was, was, this was an amazing place. And my dad had a friend who was the first violinist in the Berlin Philharmonic called Miguel. And Miguel was from Ibiza and he was about to retire. And he had been too good for the teachers in Ibiza so from about the age of 12 he'd had to go to Barcelona every three months for four days at the Conservatoire in Barcelona so I was about nine and in my head then Barcelona had to be the most amazing place in the world if Miguel had had to go there to learn to play the violin so that was all I wanted to do from that age was go and live in Barcelona. 
And you did? And I did. I was aware when I was 19 it wasn't full of very, very good violin players. I'd kind so of got there's that. There's a few. There's a few, but it's not like they don't line the streets or anything. When you when you arrive at the airport, you're not kind of serenaded by a sort of string quartet or anything <laughs> like that, sadly. Which is such a shame. It is. Such a it, nice image. And what, what you, you spend a while there? I think I lived there total about seven years and I taught English because that's about all you can do and that's sort of why I left. Because that's about all you can do. And what what drew you to stay there for for such a it just became long time. home it just became a place that I really un- understood I just I think there's a thing where you kind of go somewhere and you choose to be from there you really learn about the culture though in a way I think if you, if you're not from London and you live in London London adopts you you can do things in London you can't do in other places and in just Spain I just felt really comfortable there I really liked the language I liked the culture I liked the food I liked talking to people I liked the way things were and it just kind of became where I lived it was where I made friends I mean even now my oldest friends are still there and so I just felt at home and a very different proposition Glasgow and Barcelona very different yes especially in the 80s and early 90s it was very different I mean you know the thing is you know Barcelona was well the thing about Barcelona it's a Mediterranean port there's always something going on it's a big city people want to live in you know Glasgow was just coming out of this sort of Thatcherite slump of all the industries being closed down and being taken over by heroin. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't. They were trying in terms of they'd made it the European city of culture in ninety one, but it didn't have even you know anything like the offer it's got now, artistically or food wise or anything. Also, the weather. Yeah, yeah. it's not the best. Not the best. But you know the thing is, I have realised I've now lived back in Scotland that when you live in London or even when you live in Barcelona, you kind of take the weather for granted. And in London, you can't see the weather because there's so many buildings. So everybody said, "Oh, it doesn't, it doesn't shine very much. The weather, the sun doesn't shine very much in Glasgow." And I'm like, "Yeah, but see, when it does shine, I see it. I have big windows looking out onto things. I see sky, so I see the sun a lot more in Glasgow now than I did here, and appreciate it a lot more. Yes, because when it does come, it's it's You've a national holiday. Yes, nobody goes to work. It's nobody like, goes to it's work. Like snow in London and yeah pretty much (laughs) Uh, you got quite immersed in the Catalan culture and quite immersed in Catalan food culture in particular the thing is when I went there it was the early 90s and there weren't really any immigrants there weren't really kind of very many English speaking expats and there really the immigration that really kind of flooded Catalonia kind of flooded it post 2000 so a foreigner was something of quite of interest people would take pictures of you in the street not quite but they'd want to yeah. Um, so I mean, you go to the market and you talk to people, and you say, "Well, and you kind of look at these things. Well, what what do I do with this? And how do I cook this? And then the woman behind the the stall would tell you, and then the three women in the queue would tell you, and then somebody would passing by would join in and tell you. Should have like before you knew where you were, you had like six, seven different recipes, and then I had to repeat back to them what they'd said to me because I couldn't, I couldn't often, I didn't speak enough Spanish to really understand what they were saying, and. The thing I realised really quickly there was that if you want to know Spanish people in general, but really Spanish people in the north of Spain and in the Mediterranean, and I think it's probably true throughout a lot of the Mediterranean, is if you want to know the people, you know you know their food. The two things you, you see, even before now in the 90s, the Spanish were kind of obsessed by, well, the Catalans in particular was food and politics. And if you didn't speak any Spanish, trying to understand Catalan politics was just... Just mind mind blowingly complicated. And the food was just a way of really understanding people, so... It, it just, and I, I do think, you know, it's the same with Italy. I think if you go to Italy or if you go to a lot of North Africa, if you if you start learning about how the food is made and how what happens in this village and what happens in the next village, you, you really understand what people are about. And that's the thing, I suppose, that's just not the way that it is in Britain at all. And it's really not like that in Scotland. Nobody from Edinburgh would go to Wick 
to eat the special fish and chips from the fish and chip shop in Wick. That would make no sense at all. You, if, you, if you want the best Cornish fish in Britain, you come to a restaurant in London. <laughs> yeah, it's true. You know, you wouldn't you, you wouldn't go to Cornwall to eat a special Cornish pasty. There's not, you know, there's just not really, there's not that strength of food culture that I think the Mediterranean has. No. And I think also it's not as key component in, in people's lives. It isn't, it isn't even remotely. Because I think, you know, I just imagine the scene that you were describing, going to the market and say, what do you do with this, what do you do with this? And then suddenly you have a whole debate. Wouldn't happen in your Tesco Express. Would not happen. In, I mean, and it wouldn't even, it would rarely happen in your fancy daily, even even in your fishmongers. Your yeah. fishmonger might know, but really they would be expecting you to, to look, to ask someone else or to have a book about it. Yeah. So food was kind of your gateway into your kind of adopted culture maybe mm-hmm. it just it, it was just a way of un- it was really was a way of understanding people and what they ate and why they ate it and and also the, you know the first books that i read were food books and they were the same thing like there's a book by uh, he, i think he died in the late 80s it's a book by antonia sadra and he wrote this book about romesco and which you might you might know just as a sauce but for him it was it was exactly where it developed and how it developed and where it came from Tarragona and the way the fishermen lived and how they used to come home in their boats and eat all together. But the advent of that dreadful thing called television meant they started going home to, to eat with their family. And so it was a book that once you'd read it, you really understood how that how how Tarragona worked as a city, how, how these different areas and these different villages in Tarragona, how they worked, what was special about them. In a way that I think if you look at the history of British cookbooks, it's always been about housekeeping. It's always been about middle-class aspirational housekeeping. It's never been about explanations of people and who they are and why they do things. So when when you, you've sort of gathered all this knowledge mm-hmm. and you were so steeped in, in, in that culture, when you decided to get back, to come back to the UK, to London, the Catalan food and Catalan cooking, that was kind of your calling card. Well, Almost. it was, was the thing kind of, of your specialty. Well, what happened was I had this really boring job and I had no friends. And I had one friend okay. who yeah, moved... That, that's London living. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's she, the story of everybody's life in London. London yeah. And she moved to... Well, my friend, she moved. She got a job in University in St Andrews, so then I had no friends. And I didn't socialise people that I worked with. And Twitter began began to be a thing. And people... There were f- people do, doing food blogs and people talking about food on Twitter. So I just started talking to them. And what I found really strange was they'd all been to Barcelona, but none of them knew anything about Catalan food. And I was thinking, well, well, how can you not know this? Because, like, you're talking about being in the same street that I'm on when I eat this. And they're like, oh, you must go off the beaten track. And I'm like, no, I don't. You go to the restaurant on the left that's got English menus, and I go to the one on the right. It's not, it's a 180-degree turn. It's not a massive beaten track. I've not gone and climbed up a hill or anything. I've just gone to the same street you go to. And I just started talking about it and realising people didn't know about it and then Bevo asked me to do cooking classes in her um, when she ran Bees of Bloomsbury at the time um, what she was talking to me about I think Ferran Adria had done a recipe that she thought was really strange and I was saying to her it's not in terms of it's modern cooking but it's a modern take on a dish that's based on this and when I was telling her she was like oh well, you have to do cooking classes because she was thinking a lot of people would want to know what Catalan food was like because of all this kind of modern thing with Fernan Adrián, Joan Roca and all these chefs to see where the stuff came from. So you kind of suddenly find yourself with a career in food? Yes, which in I didn't... In food broadcasting? 
Well, which is something that you 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 haven't done this in Barcelona. You haven't done this in your no, never professional did. life. You just sort of accidentally. It just kind of happened. I mean, really, I ended up. I ended up. I set up. You know, the rope walk up Maltby Street where like the Hamonerias. I mean, I set that up, and I like never expected to be doing that. And whenever I go back down, I'm like, this actually really worked. There's a lot of people here. It's really work. I mean, did, this is what no, but it really worked. I mean, I mean, you know, like the 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 rope walk at Maltby Street is doing really, really well, and I set that up because some of them were leaving to go to Bath to this to the spa, and we were worried about people who were there wouldn't have anything to do on a Saturday, and Tuesday was there with the stall, and we thought right, we better do something here and get more people in, and we did, and it worked. You spend an evening on your social media, and you think that was a waste of an evening. That can well, be a career. You see, I did. Yeah. I got. I mean, I got my entire career and everybody that I knew out of Twitter. I mean, even I got on the, the kitchen cabinet that we did together for quite a few years because of Twitter. There was a woman who she was friends with one of the women that was one of the first producers that we had, and she'd been interviewing people, and they'd gone out for a drink, and she was like, "I've been interviewing chefs all day, and I don't know what to do. They're really boring." <laughs> they like they spend 18 hours underneath electric lights they don't have any chat you don't know anybody that knows about food and is good at chat and I met Leslie from Twitter and I'd met her in person twice and she went I know exactly who you need so I got an entire career and in broadcasting as well because of Twitter and a book deal and a book deal so this is this is something that's quite to me I love these kind of full circle stories because of me but you kind of went through all this journey you went mm -hmm. to, to Spain you came back that was your calling card naturally you'd think you're going to do a book about Catalan cooking you're doing a book about whiskey nobody wanted to book on Catalan food and nobody wanted to book on Spanish food they said that they didn't sell one of the ways that the that the publishing industry uses to measure this is what Rick Stein books sell because of no because I mean they sell just in hundreds and thousands so and of all the books that Rick Stein has done the, Sp the Spanish one was the one that sold the least. And they said that Spanish book cookbooks don't sell. Really? That's so interesting. <laughs> so nobody wanted one. And I kept getting rejections. And a friend, I was talking to a friend of mine about, well, I need to pitch something else because this isn't working. And he said, oh, why don't you do a book about cooking with beer? Now, there is a slight problem with that. Beer is the only drink I actually don't like at all. And I thought, yeah, that isn't going to work. I'm like, here's some beer. And here's some other beer. And this beer's darker than that beer. And they're both taste of beer. It's not doesn't really work as a brilliant book proposal about different flavours of beer and cooking. Well, I think if, if it's something that you're not really enthusiastic it, it about... Doesn't work. It doesn't work. I mean, and also, you know, one of those random things is we'd have ended up working and I would have spent the rest of my life being a total fraud, pretending that I liked beer. And yeah. somebody would have caught me out really quickly. I mean, Pete Brown knows I don't like beer and he's a big beer writer, so he would just have laughed. Yeah. And also, it, it just it didn't, it just wasn't something that I could do. And then I thought, actually, if you look at it, how, you know, how much whiskey is around in Scotland, the fact that we don't have any tradition of putting it in food... There must be a reason for that because old Spanish and Italian recipes from the 19th century, they have brandy in their recipes. And if you speak to anybody who's Norman, they put Calvados in everything. They put a little bit Calvados here and a little bit Calvados there. And we have no tradition of it at all. I mean, everybody goes on about Cranachan, but putting whiskey in Cranachan is really only from the 1970s. And I, I just, don't know what's that word. Cranachan is a, it's a dessert, it's a Scottish dessert. It's, I know this, it's, yeah. it's um, oats and cream and raspberries with and the cream's got some whiskey in it but traditionally it was just flavoring it could have been any kind of flavoring not whiskey 
And so I just thought, actually, we should probably create a tradition of cooking with whiskey, which means you have to kind of get people to think about it themselves rather than just giving them 100 recipes to cook with whiskey. And then I thought, right, if I'm going to do that, I should probably try and do like a road trip with some recipes. And then I thought, no one is ever going to let me do that. There is no way anybody is going to give me a publishing deal so that I can go around Scotland, around whiskey distilleries, learn about Scotland, learn about whiskey, and and cook some recipes with the whiskey. And someone did. And it was amazing. They said, yes, this sounds like a good idea. And I wanted to go, are you sure? And my agent's like, don't say you're sure, Rachel. Don't, don't, yeah, walk don't, away now. don't do that. Just smile and nod and just walk <laughs> away. <laughs> So, don't say anything before they get Rick Stein out. <laughs> so that's what I did. I and so they said yes, and I went round Scotland for about a year doing various things with various people, learning about whiskey. I mean, what I, I was reading this book, what, what I didn't realize, because you quote a lot of uh, whiskey writers and whiskey books, mm-hmm. I didn't even realize that that was uh, a, a thing, a genre. Whiskey well, books. there's a lot nowadays. They're very encyclopedic. Like apart from this one, nowadays they're generally very, very. This is this distillery. This is what the, this is how long stuff's fermented for. This is what it's like. Blah blah blah. They're very much. This is information about whiskey. In the fifties and sixties, there was a lot of sort of gentlemen writing books about whiskey, and like Neil Gunn wrote possibly one of the worst books in whiskey in the whole world. You know he, that this is unrecorded. Yes, he's dead. He's been dead for a very long time. Okay. I'm allowed to say that. No family. They consume me. I mean, they probably go. Actually, you're right, Rachel. I mean, he because he he's one of the kind of the great. The, this whiskey book is rubbish. Um, he's one of the greats of literary heroes of Scotland. He wrote a lot in the 30s and 40s, and his book on whiskey is all that romantic, nostalgic nonsense of it kind of being invented by fairies or leprechauns or something like that. And, you know, sh- shamanic rituals. You're like it just was distilling beer. That's all it was, and. But you could see that in a way that if you look at if you look at like Spain and France, the kind of sort of writers who were writing about about life and non-fiction books would be writing about food, even if they couldn't cook, they'd be writing about all these dishes. Men, so you have like Josep Pla, you have Nestor Lucan in Spain, you know, even if you have like Briat Savaran in France, in Scotland they would be writing about whiskey. They'd never be writing about food. So you kind of made me realise that actually there is a really strong whiskey culture in Scotland. Then there's the whiskey geeks who are an entire different world. Yeah, and an and an international community more than in Scotland. Yes. But what what I thought because I came to this book thinking, oh, it's going to be maybe I will learn about whiskey and it will be maybe slightly didactic and and like you said, very factual based. But it's actually kind of a boozy road trip. <laughs> very funny. Um, and it's not so much about whiskey as it is about Scotland and its people and the different communities and what makes this place special. And this is what I found really winning about this book because um, I'm not I'm not a, a whiskey drinker, but I could just you know kind of go with you on that road trip and then kind of fancy a dram. I don't know if I... No, I mean, quite a few yeah. people have said that. I actually got an email a few weeks ago from an, a, quite a young Italian woman who she's just moved to Scotland and she bought the book. And she said it was, like, for her, the most amazing sort of introduction to Scotland and whiskey. She really she really understood what Scotland meant to whiskey and what Scotland was like. And she actually gave it to her flatmate who doesn't drink at all, doesn't drink alcohol for the religious reasons, and she really enjoyed it as well. 
and it made her kind of it, again it made her understand how how Scotland works because the more you look at whiskey it became a really really big thing in Victorian times partly because of railways you know it was in the end a drink like Swedish aquavit it was just something that people had in farms and it became a really big thing in the 19th century partly because of railways partly because of uh, grain like continuous distills whiskey could be made in an industrial scale it could be then it could be mixed with malt whiskies people were building distilleries everywhere in the 19th century and it kind of makes you realize if you go to somewhere if you go to somewhere like Mallorca Mallorca was really made in the medieval in the medieval times that's why you know, all these there's these really big medieval villages Mallorca was important in medieval times and it hasn't wasn't really since then whereas you could see how much Scotland was made by the 19th century so a lot of the decline of industry the decline of distilleries so Campbelltown used to have 33 distilleries and now it's got three and you go to Campbelltown and everything just looks like it's a kind of declining Victorian place in a way that if you look at Mallorca without tourists Mallorca is just these wee medieval villages with nothing Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. And this is, this is what another thing that I enjoyed reading about because it was very much um, a personal journey. You mm. were very much discovering the country that you left all those years ago and kind of falling in love with it a bit maybe no i wouldn't go that far Mm, liking it no tolerating tolerating it better than i've tolerated it before well i think there's (laughs) there's really you know like the the bit in in 
that you go to the where they shot uh, Braveheart. Yes. Which I think, you know, again, the first thing that you think about when you say Scotland, you, you, you so many people would think Braveheart. And then... So there's only... So, you know, if you think it is like the world thing, everybody says, if you go anywhere in the world, oh, you're Scottish, whiskey, mm-hmm. oh, Braveheart, yep, okay. And it is the most famous Scottish film ever made. And, although it's not Scottish, but so let's say the most famous, nearly Scottish film ever made. And the only thing left is a Forestry Commission car park that says the Braveheart car park. There's not even like a cardboard cutout of um, Mel Gibson with his face painted in blue and white that you could stand next to. And so they had to take away absolutely everything of um, all of the all of the buildings, all of the the kind of houses that they built. They were just plaster, so they took them all away. So you do see these tourists kind of with their phones going. This I think is this is the place taking photographs of each other in the place that it might have been in in the car park. And it's just a forestry commission car park. So you just have to go and stand by the Braveheart car park and shout freedom and get your photograph taken because <laughs> and you can't do it beside Mel. You have to Photoshop Mel Gibson beside you. I, I love that bit, and I, I mean, it's it's also you do learn a lot about whiskey and about the making of it. And what I wanted people, people to do was it. learn it in a way that was easy. So this is, you know, the problem if you're going in whiskey distilleries, you're in a whiskey distillery, and they're making whiskey, and then you're in another whiskey distillery, and guess what they're doing in that distillery? They're making whiskey, and by the time you've been to number forty. What are you supposed to write about? Oh, we're in another distillery and they're making Hopefully whiskey Hopefully by then too. you're so drunk that it doesn't matter. <laughs> but it, it is that thing of most most books are just that sort of this is what these still shapes are and this is what it's like. So I was trying to put in enough explanations so that by the time it comes to the end, you'd understand an awful lot about whiskey, but that you hadn't really lost the will to live. <laughs> and that you were kind of interested in it. And I wanted it to be a book that you'd read and laugh and want to drink a whiskey because you'd think it was fun. Because that was the thing I did really learn. And the way that in the Mediterranean food is fun, it's not about having things being perfect. It's about going with your friends, sitting at a big table, having an argument, passing the food around and having a good time. And I realised a lot about whiskey was that sense of conviviality. It is about going and enjoying yourself. And because there are so many different ways of making whiskey... In terms of there's so much, there's so much. The process has also got the barrels. Everything goes on for. You know, sometimes they're twelve years old. Sometimes the barley's like this. Sometimes it's peated. Sometimes it isn't. You kind of can get really into whiskey in a in a way that's kind of like middle aged clubbing. You know, it's kind of that really exciting thing of what am I going to drink and do now, in a way that you know. I mean, I hung up my gold boob tube a long time ago. I am not going out clubbing ever again, especially not in Glasgow. And I can <laughs> and I can now go to whiskey pubs and really enjoy myself. Um, I mean, what what the the one very interesting thing that that that, that I learned, two things actually. One is is the people that make the malt mm-hmm. are called maltsters, mm-hmm. which surely is the biggest missed opportunity in the world. They should have been called Maltesers. <laughs> I was gutted that they're not. I will ask the Asio and I will ask actually I will ask the Scottish Whiskey Association if they can officially change that. They just, have to. I mean, they're big guys. I don't I mean, imagine like. You know, the six foot four guys on Isla. Maltesers. I'm a Malteser. No. Gold. It doesn't, it doesn't really work. It doesn't work. Um, but it's the difference between the different whiskies mm-hmm. is not to do with, with the place or the water or the grain. It's to do with the people. Ah, it's to do with the process of how you make with it. With the process. So and and how, what the shape of a still is. and. Which that's really because, you know, also for, for me as a chef... 
so much is about you know the local produce and how different thing will taste in a different place or you know so if you think about wine you think a lot about uh, the grape and the terroir and all these kind of not man-made things but the whiskey the difference between is purely in the making is purely in the people i think the thing is whiskey does have probably best described as like an emotional terroir people do feel attached to the distillery that's near them in a way that um I have a friend from Wick who's way, that's way up in the north of Scotland and his two favourite whiskies are Highland Park because that's on Orkney which is about mm. 45 minutes on the ferry or Old Pulteney and you ask him well Kevin why is that the whiskey that you like and he just looks at you like your daft went well I'm from Wick of course it's going to be the whiskey that I like and then you listen to people and like people from Speyside like Speyside whiskies if they say I'm from Aberdeenshire you know they're going to like a Speyside whiskey and another friend of mine mostly drinks Ardbeg because her dad's from Ardbeg he's from that village and their explanations are very much to do with, like, in, in places like Catalonia, they would say, well, well, this is my dish, this is mine. And hers is like, this is my whiskey, I drink this whiskey. And one of the things I remember, this, this friend of mine, we were in, we were in the pot still, which is like a, sort of one of those iconic pubs in Glasgow, it's got about 700 whiskies. And we were standing there, and there's a, a new distillery on Isle that's been going for about 10 years called Kilcoman. And I said, well, why don't we get one of those whiskies? And she said, oh, that's that one that's the back of Peter's house. It's the farm up the road from wherever. And I'm like, mm-hmm. don't know what you're talking about. But yeah, I'll just agree. You obviously know where this is. And I said, well, why don't I'll get one of them and then you can get something else. And she went, no, 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 let's get the same thing. Let's let's share the same thing. And I thought she's got this so ingrained and in, almost in her DNA that she would get the same whiskey with me to share a moment that she would never do with gin, she would never do that with wine, and she would never do that with food. For her, sharing a moment was sharing the same whiskey. And that particular one. And that one, because that was from the farm up the road that she'd never tried before. That's beautiful. It it really made me see how much, how much that sense of conviviality is not involved in food at all and how much it is involved around specifically whiskey, which... No. I think once you get your head, it's like that thing of once you get your head around, that's, it means to Scottish culture what the, it, food means to the Mediterranean. It's much easier to understand how whisky works within, with, among Scottish people. There is some food in the book. Mm-hmm. There is the... You have to say it. I can't say it. The... Cranachan? That one. Yes. Yeah. Recipe for that, mm-hmm. Caledonia cream, cream, that sounds delicious. That is one I've never understood why that is not one of the biggest desserts in the whole of Britain because it's so insultingly easy. I mean, you basically just take some fresh cream. You even can go to the supermarket and just buy the extra thick cream, which means you don't even have to whip it up. You stir in some crowdy or just some Philadelphia. And if you want to be fancy, I suppose you could use mascarpone, but I mean, you don't need to. Philadelphia's fine. And you put in some... Philadelphia's fancy in our book, Yeah. <laughs> Or also, sometimes I do use the extremely discounted cream cheese from the supermarket own brand. And then you just put in some orange marmalade and just some lemon, and then you just add in a whiskey. Any whiskey, the one that you like, is the one that goes best. And it is just the most amazing dessert. And even when I'm sitting in Scotland going, who knows this dessert? And everybody goes, never heard of it. And then they watch me making it, and then they go, why do we not know how to do this? This is the easiest thing in the world. And then I did, I did, I made Caledonia cream a few weeks ago couple of weeks ago in St Andrews and apparently everybody was going oh we're having this on Christmas day this is a brilliant dessert because it's so easy on St Andrews they didn't know it in in St Andrews and it was full of Scottish people they'd never heard of this dessert that we don't have a food culture we just don't well they all cook uh, Middle Eastern food because we were there 
Yeah, they all cook Middle Eastern food and they cook, and they cook, <laughs> and and then they cook Mexican food. Or I mean, I noticed this, my mother has a walking group and I sometimes go out with the walking group and you just listen to them. You know, they're all making Thai curries at home. Nobody's making anything Scottish. They're making stuff from, they're making stuff from magazines, they're making stuff from the TV. Nobody's making stuff from a kind of a cultural base. <coughs> so it, it's, just, it's just what they're making, whereas... I also think even like with my mother's generation, dinner parties were not about being convivial. They were kind of that Abigail's party kind of weird middle class one-upmanship. So they were never really about the food. They were always about certain modes of behaviour. So they were not they weren't an enjoyable experience for anybody. They were just stressful. Whereas sitting in, in a pub and sharing a whiskey was always something that was just fun. Guys, does anyone have any questions for Rachel? Mm-hmm. Staying sober, I think, was the challenge. <laughs> Actually writing it, it the, the kind of panic of writing it, and also trying to take out stuff that, that trying to do the history and the process of whiskey without being really boring is actually really hard because I'm not a big facts and figures person so I can't and I can't remember them like I'm going to it's in the book because I would really research them I'd get the right number and I'd write it down and completely forget the number of like how many kilos to how many fermenting that I'd say was the hardest one was trying to judge the balance between having some history and having some serious stuff to just having um, I'm getting chatted up by a man with his name tattooed in his knuckles in a dumpy town in Scotland and it's quite entertaining and you had to, so it was that mixture and trying to get that balance so that there was enough about history and there was enough about whiskey so you could learn, but there was also just stuff that you did, would make you want to drink whiskey and would just make you laugh. Oh, that's great, thank you. Hmm. Um, what do you think about putting ice in whiskey? I think that people that don't want you putting ice in whiskey generally live in Scotland. <laughs> I think I think if it's forty degrees in Madrid. I would not not put ice in whiskey, and I think also it's your whiskey. I think if you like ice in whiskey, then you have ice in your whiskey if that's what you like. Um, there is all this stuff, you know, and it's just grumpy old men. I mean, in the same way, in, in the same way, in the Mediterranean, you get grumpy people going, "Well, that's not a proper dish like that because you haven't got those onions from." I mean, people in Valencia can be so obsessed with paella that they will take water from Valencia back to Madrid, and that's the only time you can have a proper, you know, paella from Valencia is when I've got my water from my village. And I think the whole whiskey, water, whiskey, ice thing is similar to that. I mean, somebody did once make me a cocktail with um, Lagavulin and Coca-Cola. Oh no! And I really liked it. <laughs> and I was going, really? Have I got to drink this? And it was they'd put in some um, fig salt. They'd put in it was. Um, Put and then it's called a smoky cokey, and it's actually really nice. I wouldn't want it every day, so I think if if you prefer ice in your whiskey, you put ice in your whiskey. This is the the domestic struggles that you have. I just put one little tiny cube of ice. You have to sneak away. Water. Well, I think you need to. I think you need to say I'm allowed to do this now and do it with pride. This is how I like it. On the subject of food, and I guess if you ask a lot of people why. To name a Scottish dish, they'd probably say haggis. Is that? I deliberately didn't put haggis in. I thought you probably didn't. I deliberately no, I really didn't. I deliberately didn't put it in because I just thought it's it really is something that you if you're going to create a tradition you need to be doing this at home and you need to be thinking of new ways to do it and just going let's have whiskey sauce with haggis isn't a new way to use whiskey. So I my point was I suppose that that is a food that people drink whiskey. 
Eh. Well, they kind of do on Burns Night, kind of this annual event, but it's not, again, it's not something people do without it being the Burns Night thing you do once a year, and then you forget about it until ne- the year after. So, again, it's yeah. not, you know, it's not a real, it's not like a real tradition in the way that, you know, mm. Indian people would just have Johnny Walker and Soda with a curry as a thing that they did. Yeah. What's the most charming distillery that you got to visit? If you had to recommend one, my favorite distillery, my favorite distillery is Aran Distillery. But my favorite distillery is Aran Distillery because it's a really nice island, and you go in a wee bus mm-hmm. once you get, and the, you kind of go around a one-track road. It's only about two hours from Glasgow, and if you go to a lot of distilleries, there's a lot of very young people who maybe they're students and it's their kind of summer holiday or they're looking for better jobs, and they're kind of there because that's the job they've got. Everybody in Aran is retired. Everybody in Aran Distillery, they're all in their 70s. And they're just having the time of their lives. They've all retired, moved to the island. Their wives have got fed up with them and went, well, you just go and get a job. So they go and go and work in the distillery two or three days a week. And they are just, they, they've died and gone to heaven. They swish about in kilts. They talk to foreigners. They show them whiskey. They just tell, they tell ridiculous stories. They all, when all their days off, they go sailing across to other part of the island. So to me, that's my favourite one, just because I like them. They're just fun. It is very authentic to your um, Just more, I mean, a whiskey distillery visitor centre is a tourist thing. So, you know, how authentic can it be? They're all, they're just visitor centres. But it's just I like them because I like the men. I like it's mostly men, and there's a few women who like there's a few women who just thought I'm going to get a job too. So they the women run the shop, and there's a woman who is is who runs who's a manager of the whole visitor centre, and she's in her sixties, and they're just they're having a good time. Okay. You can see they enjoy it. That's why I, li- I like that place the best because they're really enjoying themselves while they're taking you round. Okay. <laughs> Mark. Hmm? Uh, yeah. Thank you again. Japanese whiskies. Mm-hmm. In your research, have you formed an opinion on them? And that, have you found that they use whiskey with food any more than Scotland do? I don't know if they use whiskey with food. I know that Japanese whiskey is very much a prestige drink in a way that it's whiskey in Scotland is a normal drink. The one thing I really say that I really notice with Scottish whiskey is it's not a class thing. If you get better whiskey, you've just got more money. And it's not in a way that food in Spain isn't a class thing. Like when when the when Spain had its massive crisis in 2008, the, the food industry was really, really badly affected because people had been had more money, were buying better food. And Japanese whiskey is really, really good. I really liked a lot of it. It's got a different taste to Scotch whiskey, but I, it is really good quality. But quite a lot of it is actually made elsewhere. So for Scotch whiskey, it has to have been distilled and stored in Scotland to be called Scotch whiskey for at least three years in a barrel. Japanese whiskey just has to be aged in Japan. So I think it's the chapter, actually, it was when I was with Sherry, I think I was with her for chapter two and three. She, um, we went to Ben Nevis Distillery in Fort William, and Ben Nevis Distillery is owned by Nika. And a lot of the stuff that comes off the still in Ben Nevis goes straight to Japan to be aged and then sold back at like 80 quid a bottle. Whereas Ben Nevis whiskey is sold at something like 35 quid a bottle. It has the worst packaging you've ever seen in your life. It's like a bad little design from like the 1970s, but it's half the price of Nika whiskey. Um, guys, a big hand to this girl. And you want to be holding on to your glasses.
Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Honey and Coke. We hope you enjoyed it, even if you didn't get to try the food. I promise everything was absolutely delicious. There are some wonderful guests coming up in the next few weeks and will be available to download. So make sure you subscribe to us on iTunes and please leave us a review if you can. That'll be really, really great for us. This show is expertly produced by Hester Kant, music by the great Ellis Russell. If you want to come along to one of our talks, you can join our mailing list on our website, honeyandco.co.uk, or follow us on our social media at Honey and Co. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.